Hey there, before we get started, I wanted to let you in on something. We're working on an episode about corruption, and we want to hear from you. If you have a story, big or small, about how corruption has affected your business, you can send it to us. Your story could be featured on an episode of Grit and Growth just like this one. Submissions are easy. Just send us a voice memo to Stanford Seed via WhatsApp at 1-650-206-3055. Once again, that's 1-650-206-3055. And share your story and help thousands of entrepreneurs just like you. And you can choose to share your name or the country you're working in, or you can choose to remain completely anonymous. It's entirely up to you. Thank you in advance for sharing your stories of corruption. For a woman going into a room like this, there are very few things that we can fully control. One of the things we can control is where our attention goes. And we can make the choice to Think about the situation we're entering in a way that makes us feel small or ashamed to be there or unsure whether we belong. Female entrepreneurs have to deal with immense but often invisible challenges. They're faced with social pressure and unconscious bias, both in their colleagues and themselves. So how do you succeed when the deck is stacked against you? Or we can choose to interpret the situation in a way that's empowering and makes it easier for us to show up in the way that we want to. Welcome to the second season of Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the show where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. Women make up about 50% of the global population, but only about a third of the world's business owners. And worldwide, women are still paid almost 40% less than men in similar roles. Is that because men deliver more value or are inherently better at running businesses? Of course not. So why is there so much inequality? And what can women do to close the gap for themselves and for all women? In two of our recent episodes, we spoke with professors Deborah Grunfeld and Margaret Neal about power and negotiation. These are social phenomena that are experienced differently based on who you are. So we invited them back to discuss how power and negotiation are different for female entrepreneurs. We also wanted to see how these issues are experienced in context. So we reached out to an entrepreneur who's been navigating them for years. So my name is Georgette Bansichiado. I am Ghanaian. I have a mine support service company. We do supplies to the mining sector in West Africa. Our range of products is mainly for exploration and drilling. So what are they mining for in Ghana with your consumables? It's mostly gold in West Africa. It's mostly gold. And I think we have a couple of clients that are doing copper, I think. And um, lately, we have a client that's drilling for lithium. Mining in West Africa is traditionally a male-dominated industry. And Georgette ran into difficulties even before she got the job. They called me for an interview. You know, it was like, you? Yeah, <laughs> I mean... Who are yeah. you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, who are you? I mean, where have you been? Where have you worked? You know, who do you know? 
I had no idea about the mining sector. And, you know, so they said, well, you know, you don't have any experience. You know, how can we go with you? And I said, well, I mean, nobody wants to give me opportunities. Nobody wants to give me experience, the experience that you are asking for. Dr. Grunfeld says that this reflects a broader trend of who gets opportunities and why. A big challenge for women entrepreneurs is that the research shows that women are judged on results, but men are judged more on potential. Could you say a bit more about what that means? Mm -hmm. What it tells us is that because of what most of us see in the social world, which is that there are more men in positions of power than women, we tend to think a leader looks like a man. And so it's very easy to see leadership potential in a man because a man looks like what we expect to see in a leadership role. With women, we don't make the same kind of assessment. A, a woman doesn't actually look to us like what we think a leader is supposed to look like. So there's a tendency to default more to, does she have the experience? Has she earned the expertise? Is she qualified based on prior results for this role? So, so that's a way in which women are sometimes held back and not chosen first for leadership roles because we're not given the benefit of the doubt because we don't fit the type. People need to see more evidence of accomplishment in order to feel confident that we'll be successful. So they're not going to get the job because someone says, oh, I love her, she's a risk taker. Right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not cool. I think that's right. I think that's right. It's just less likely to happen. Fortunately, that's not where Georgette's story ended. And ironically, it had a lot to do with her willingness to take a risk. And after I had opened my, my little mouth at that time to say that, I realized that, oh my goodness, how can you say this to all these people sitting here, you know? I, I, were they, were they uh, sorry, I love this story. Were they Ghanaians? Yes, there were, there were Ghanaians and there was, um, there was an American as well. Were you the youngest person in the room? Yes. Were you the only woman in the room? Oh, I, they didn't care to me, but I was, yes. <laughs> so you were the youngest. You were the only woman in the room. There's this American guy. You walk in, and are you, were you just nervous as hell? I started getting a bit nervous because I realized I was being ambitious. I was being over-ambitious. I was getting over myself, yeah. And I said, well, you know, you're looking for somebody. I can, you know, I think I can do this work. But I had one thing going for me. One of the uh, main countries that they wanted to go to, I had been there and I had been to their university. And so I had that going for me. But even still, Darius, I left there knowing that there's no way I would get the job. Well, surprisingly, I did get the job. And that was my introduction to, to the mining industry. As Georgette progressed throughout her career, she frequently encountered resistance, which won't be surprising to female leaders. You had a quote here that I, I wanted to read to you. When you look at people in positions of power, what you find is that men and women do not actually behave differently in these roles. They're perceived entirely differently doing exactly the same things. <laughs> I love that, but what does it mean? It's true. So what that means is that, you know, we have a lot of ideas in our head about how male and female leaders are different and behave differently. There is a lot of research to suggest that when male leaders are very decisive, are argumentative, challenge others, 
express a lot of confidence, interrupt others. They're just viewed as very competent and strong. And when women exhibit those same behaviors, they are viewed in a way that's much more negative because they're seen as violating the gender expectations, which is that we expect women to make the rest of us feel better all the time. According to Margaret Neal, these gender norms affect negotiations as well. Women negotiating face a lot more challenges than their male counterparts. They do so because there is a social expectation about how women should be in society, and it really goes across many cultures, and that is that women should be accommodating, women should make other people feel good. And so what happens is, is that when, for example, as a woman, I try to negotiate, that makes my counterpart uncomfortable. Consciously or subconsciously? I think consciously. And that means that the response is, they perceive me as being greedy and demanding and not nice. Even if I'm doing exactly the same thing that my male counterpart equally qualified would do. So if we had the same script, I asked for it, they asked for it, they aren't perceived as being greedy and demanding, but I am because my role is to make people feel good. Are they perceived as being greedy by just men or by men and women? Men and women, we've all drunk the same Kool-Aid. So don't think that there's gonna be like, oh, women are gonna be like, oh, okay, come on. No, we all do this. Georgette has to wrestle with these social expectations in all her negotiations, even after decades in the business. We were approached by an international company and we are negotiating to represent them locally. So when they approached me, I said, bam, here it is. I'm gonna do this, but I want to do it for West Africa. So that was your, when you were thinking about this conversation, you had a clear goal in mind. I want to be their distributor for the whole region. Well, before we went into the meeting, I had already told them our ability and our capacity and and where we had already been in the West African market. So I did not expect that they would reject us having the whole region. I wasn't expecting that. So when we went into the meeting and they kept pushing for that, I was a bit surprised. But instead of pushing and pushing them, I just said, okay, it's okay. I will take the Ghana. Why? If that wasn't your aspiration, why did you agree? I have been in situations where people, especially in this region, people would insist and say, no, they would not give it to me. And they want to split it. And then they split it. I've been in situations, they split it, and then they come back looking for me. Because it's a very difficult region to to work in. And so I decided that, well, I needed to prove myself. I, I needed to prove myself. Georgette has gotten used to proving herself. But this endless pushback that women experience can have a chilling effect on their own aspirations. Also what happens is because of life experiences or whatever, women have systematically lower expectations for what they can achieve in negotiations than their male counterparts. So they're coming in with an anchored aspiration that's too low. So think about that though for a minute. I'm gonna get pushback if I negotiate and I really don't expect to get very much. So really, why should I try? So they negotiate less. They negotiate, well, and that was certainly, the notion is that women don't ask. Right? Well, that was probably more true 10 years ago, five years ago, 
We now have a lot of research that finds that women, when women do ask, and a lot of women do ask, they still get less. So it's not parity. The truth is, in this particular negotiation, I was actually, I, I was actually tired. I was really tired. You have to be in a good space because it's mental strength. You think that, oh, it's not um, tiring, but it's tiring. And um, talking about that particular situation, I felt so tired that I think it's also contributed to my saying that, okay, that's okay, you know, let's give it a try. Unfortunately, it can be a double-edged sword because women are also punished when they hold their ground and ask for what they want. We had a recent study, just got published. What we found was interesting because, so we, what we did was we got 20, we had 2,500 executives, MBA students, people from around the world, because we went to various countries and we collected data. And we had 2,500 people negotiate. And they had either a really good alternative or a modest alternative. And what we found was, is that when women with a good alternative negotiated against someone with a good alternative, they reached impasse six times more often. A woman with a good alternative, regardless of whether the counterpart was male or female, but had a good alternative, six times more likely to reach impasse, while a man doing that same thing reached a deal. Why? Women were behaving in ways that were inconsistent with being nice and cooperative and accommodating. We checked. They didn't behave any differently in terms of their reservation price, their aspirations, than their male counterparts. But what happened was, is they were, both men and women, punished them for demanding too much. It makes me wonder, you know, what does that tell you about your strategy for going as a woman leader, CEO, going into a negotiation where the other party has a good alternative. It means you may want to really embrace my collaborative problem-solving approach. Because yeah. when you know you're negotiating, when women act as agentically as men, there's pushback. Georgette continues to encounter that resistance in her ongoing negotiations. So even though I, I accepted that, okay, let's start with Ghana, I wasn't happy after the um, meeting. I wasn't happy because I had opened myself up for even further negotiations for them to even now say that, oh, they have existing clients in Ghana. And so with that one to, you know, don't like to give you um, a reduced commission. Of course, I, re I refused. So they said, they said, once you gave away your real objective in your power. Then they said, fine, we, we also want you to share Ghana with others and get paid less. I can't do that for Ghana. I can't do that. You know, it's going to be difficult. So anyway, to cut a long story short, we haven't signed. <laughs> Still negotiating. Still negotiating. I'm holding out. <laughs> You're holding out for what? For full of Ghana. The lowered aspirations that Margaret described can go beyond your negotiations. Georgette experienced similar self-doubt when she explored the idea of starting her own business. I knew I wanted to set up my own company, but I didn't think I could do it. And I didn't think that, um, you know, a young girl like me should, um, a young African Ghanaian woman should have that um, dream of doing something that... Um, was really reserved for um, international companies. But 
anyway, I said, let me give it a go. I don't want to be a giant. <laughs> I just want to make a point and I just want to try this. And so um, without any financial backing, without very much, I decided that what did I have? And I said to myself, I had my name. Um, Georgette Bans, the name Georgette Bans is, um, had become quite um, known in the exploration and drilling side. So I said, well, maybe if I used my name, people would at least recognize my introduction letter or my, you know, my invoice. Over the past 12 years, I am quite certain that we have made supplies to every mine in West Africa because we've done business in Mauritania, Senegal, Niger, Mali, Togo, Burkina Faso, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Cameroon, Nigeria, and of course, the biggest is, is Ghana. In Ghana, all the mines we have done supplies to. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a quick question here? So you said that it didn't even feel right to have that dream. Wrong gender, wrong country, wrong age, whatever, you know, wrong industry. Were people telling you and your family or your friends, hey, Georgette, you're nuts? At that point in my life, Darius, I didn't even know about wrong gender. It didn't occur to me. <laughs> good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, it really hadn't even occurred to me. My whole thing was, you know, because um, the whole thing was mining was really very, very foreign. It was foreign owned, you know, in my world from the exposure I had had. I hadn't seen any indigenous businesses per se for me to even attempt. Maybe there were some, but luckily for me, um, my mom always used to encourage me, you know, anything I wanted to do, she would always be like, if other costs are covered and that's what you want to do, you should do it. And so she had really raised me up to be a very independent woman. You know, as a single mother, I had seen her go through stuff and I seen her, you know, struggle. And I, yeah. So even though I kept having those doubts, I just one day decided that, okay, I am going to do this. God bless strong mothers. Yep. <laughs> God bless my mom, especially. The support that Georgette received from her mother, both as a champion and a role model, was crucial. And it's a similarly communal approach that Dr. Grunfeld sees as a way to shift the paradigm. You can't change people's subconscious biases. So how else can you get them to be more comfortable with you breaking their subconscious gender norming? Yeah. I mean, this requires a bit of, of cooperation and coalition building. It's very difficult for any of us to change someone's stereotypes through our own behavior. But what can make a difference is when we surround ourselves with people who treat us as though we're worthy of respect and admiration and competence. So that's what changes the norm. If people are always looking for cues about whether they should trust a person or not. And the way they figure that out often is by looking at how other people treat them. So yeah, it's it's actually a much quicker path to change to uh, 
not just surround yourself with people who will who will help, who will vouch for you, but also to look for opportunities to lift others up. And this is something that I talk with women about a lot, you know, which is to say, look, you you may not be able to stop people from interrupting you. You may not be able to get someone to treat you in a way that's more respectful, but you can behave in a way that makes it seem like it's more appropriate to treat another woman with respect. And eventually that will change things for, for all of us. It's also the case that if you look at what predicts status and influencing groups, we're much less likely to get credit for defending ourselves than we are for defending other people. So it's a, a better way to, you know, if I, if I intervene on another woman's behalf, I get, I get credit for that. I, I took a personal risk to protect somebody else. But if I protest at the way I'm being treated, it just looks self-interested and, and defensive. So it's, it's a quicker path to try to change the way others are perceived than to try to change how others perceive us. So the finding that we had before, which is on average, men do better when they negotiate for self than women do, still holds. And that is even if they ask or don't ask, right? But when women negotiate for others, they outperform their male counterparts by 14 to 22%. That's huge. It is huge. I have kind of a tongue-in-cheek statement that I make. I said, look, this, what this suggests is you should hire women lawyers. Seriously, they're going to be cheaper and... <laughs> They're, they're going to do, do a better job. Do a better job. And if there are any women lawyers in the group, I'm happy to talk to you about how to get more. <laughs> so can you help me understand that finding? Why do women do better negotiating because for others? nobody calls me greedy and demanding if I'm negotiating for other people. You know, women take care of others. That's what I should be doing. So I understand that part, but you're also outperforming. Because it turns out that we're not bad negotiators. We just understand the social pressures that we experience, and so it limits. And women are great problem solvers, are great problem solvers too, but they don't have the social pressure to sort of be a certain way that women do. This focus on others doesn't just build community. It redefines what society expects of women into professional strengths. It gives female entrepreneurs a whole new framework to unlock their personal power. So thinking about our audience, a lot of women entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, what should be their strategy given these biases? So one thing that I say to a lot of the women's audiences is that their strategy to try to overcome this should be, number one, think about for people, things, items. Who are you negotiating for, right? Are you negotiating for your organization, for your team, for your family? Or maybe you're negotiating for all the other women who come after you who may not have to suffer this problem. So you need to think about who you're negotiating for, because that may empower you to be more assertive in the process. The other part of it for a woman really has to do with how to deal with the narrative in your head about the fact that you're a woman going into a male-dominated arena, that people may not respect you, that people may underestimate you in certain ways. And that's really a separate part of working on a your personal power that I think is very important for women, which is making sure that you take charge 
of how you interpret the situation that you're in. So just to give you a great example of how this can work, a few years ago, Oprah Winfrey came to the business school and she was in our view from the top. And someone in the audience asked her how she handles going into a room where she knows she's going to be the only woman and the only person of color in the room. And she described, um, she said, you know, that, that's actually not how I go in. What I do before I go into a room like that is I, you know, go into a closet or close a door and I mentally call up all the women and people of color who've been in this situation that I'm in before, all of the women and people of color who cleared the path for me to enter the space that I'm entering. And when I go into the room, they're with me. So I feel like I'm coming in as part of an army. I'm never going into a room alone. This conceptual framework can liberate you from all sorts of gendered expectations, like what Professor Neal calls the competence-liking paradox. So competent women aren't likable and likable women aren't competent. Men can be both competent and likable, but women can be either competent or likable. And so as you move up in the organization, every person who moves up in the organization has to push and, sh and basically oftentimes, you know, gore a few oxes on the way up, you know, basically make changes and changes are uncomfortable. And so what happens is, is that people become less likable as they go up through the hierarchy. Not everybody loves you anymore, right? And for women, we have been so inculcated that we need to be likable that a lot of times women will choose not to take that promotion because they don't want to lose that likability. Fortunately, and despite being incredibly likable, this isn't something that Georgette struggles with. I really don't want to be likable. <laughs> I want to deliver a good quality job. Everything is done properly. Yes, I don't want to be likable. Including in a meeting, in a negotiation. No, I don't want to be likable. <laughs> Already being female, puts you in a position where everybody's thinking, let me be protective of her. I don't want to go on that emotional journey. <laughs> and Professor Neil has found her own way to free herself of the paradox. I'm on a trip right now, and if I come home, my husband will say to me, uh, hey, how was your trip? How was your talk? Whatever, you know? And then he goes on about his life. But I walk in, I have three dogs. Those dogs look at me and like, oh my God, you are back. We are so excited. I mean, the world wasn't even worth living because you weren't here. So if you want to be liked, get a dog. Or even better, get a rescue and save two lives. Oh. This process of unlearning and reframing, it takes a long time. Even Georgette, who has decades of successes under her belt, is still working on it. We have a, a proverb or a saying that says that uh, which means that when you are made of good quality, you don't blow your horn. My grandmother always used to tell me, people will find out. I mean, it's, it's old fashioned because the world is not like that anymore and you don't know what is out there. So it is something that I keep doing, but I don't think that I should continue doing that, you know? I feel like I need to be bolder. I need to push more. But it's a long road. So while you push for more, remember to cut yourself some slack. Especially when I started having my, my kids and um, uh, motherhood and working in the sector, it wasn't easy, you know? I mean, 
But I've always liked work, you know, so, you know, I'm one of those people who was eager to go to work, even though I'm supposed to be in ma- on maternity and, and, and stuff like that. But sometimes it did get stressful, you know. You know, I remember one day I was so stressed and so upset with myself over something that had happened at work. And as I was leaving the office, we had an old um, security man, you know, a Ghanaian man, and he said to me, oh, small madam, you know, why, you know, why are you feeling so low? You shouldn't feel so low, you know, you're going home. Work is work and home is home. And when you get home, the work people cannot come to your house. And so, please, before you leave this gate, just leave the the thing that is not making you happy. Leave it with me in the morning when you come. I'll give it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I like that guy. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. He, he, he was an amazing guy. You know, one day I'll have to tell you more stories about him. There's one more thing that I'd like to cover, and it involves personal safety. In their lifetime, many women will experience sexual harassment at work, be it verbal abuse, unwanted advances, or physical assault. It should not be incumbent upon women to change their behavior to avoid harassment. But what should be and what is aren't always the same. So while we work to bring the world closer to what it ought to be, I wanted to share what Dr. Grunfield had to say on harassment. Specifically, how to protect yourself from mental, reputational, and physical harm. I want to talk about the sort of inevitable challenge that women face in a business or corporate setting dealing with propositions from men, dealing with presumptions about who they are and what they're willing to do to get ahead. Mm -hmm. What's my toolkit? How do I arm myself to deal with that in a way that allows me to create the boundaries of respect that I deserve, but also allows me to succeed? Mm One of the really interesting things that you learn when you start looking really closely at misconduct and crimes in organizations is that people who violate norms and laws, they tend to do it in places where others won't see it happening. And so there's no chance of being caught and there's no chance of the victim being supported. There won't be any intervention. One of the things that I've spent a lot of time talking with young women professionals about is controlling to the extent that it's possible where meetings and interactions happen. You're much less vulnerable in public than you are in private. And I'm not convinced that there are very many topics that need to be discussed in a room with a door closed. So one piece of advice I would say is is to try to have conversations in public professional places where others are witnessed. So it just, it just keeps everything more above board. The other thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that one of the challenges in terms of women dealing with inappropriate overtures is being sure that a boundary has been crossed. Sometimes it's ambiguous or someone's just complimenting you on how you look and you can't tell whether you should be worried about it or not. There are Places that people meet professionally where the norms of what's appropriate are very murky. An example would be like a bar after work or in a hotel during a conference where it's kind of a work setting, but it's also kind of a social setting. And it's harder to tell in those situations 
whether a boundary is being crossed, and it's harder to know how to respond in a way that doesn't seem overly unfriendly. Those are the riskiest types of situations in my experience. I think it's safer to do as much as much meeting as possible in a purely professional context where the norms of what's appropriate and inappropriate are more clear so that it's easier to recognize when boundaries are being crossed and I think also easier to respond in a way that makes it less likely that it will happen again. These are only some of the issues facing female entrepreneurs worldwide. Inadequate childcare and maternity leave policies, gender pay gaps, unequal access to funding and education. These are present to some degree across every economy, developing, emerging, or otherwise. Although we have seen some progress for female entrepreneurs, traditions, unconscious bias, and structural impediments remain. I urge all the men listening to this to inquire how they can address their own biases and create a more equitable working environment for women in your company, in your industry, and in your community. I promise you will only benefit from this. To the female entrepreneurs listening, I applaud your bravery and ingenuity in a world where the deck can sometimes be stacked against you. So I hope you find the strategies that we discuss in this episode useful. I'd like to offer a big thanks to Professors Deborah Grunfeld and Margaret Neal, who bring years of applied research and experience to helping women entrepreneurs succeed. And I'd like to thank Georgette Barnes in particular for showing us how it's done. This has been Grit and Growth with the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It really helps us to share the stories of these incredible entrepreneurs with as many people as possible. To learn how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs in Africa and Asia, head over to the Stanford Seed website at seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed. Lori Fuller and Erica Amuake Ajay researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves, with writing and production from Andrew Gannum and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Hold up. 